Hi, listeners. I know it has been a while since I've made an episode of this show, and I know I keep promising that I have more episodes coming, and I know that I have failed miserably to deliver on that promise. There are a lot of reasons for this, mainly that the pandemic has caused me to reconsider everything I'm doing with my life, and I've been trying to figure out what comes next, but One of the reasons is that I've spent the last few months working on a different type of story, and that's the story I'm sharing today. The story is a little different from the stories you usually hear on this show, notably because uh, it's not exactly a funny story. I know, I'm sorry, I realize that funny story is in the title of this show. And look, there are some funny moments in this story, but it is primarily a story about grief. But it is a story about sorting your way through difficult times, which is something I always was striving to do with this comedy pandemic podcast of mine. So if you've enjoyed listening to this show over the last year, I think you will like this one. Anyway, I don't want to explain it too much. I just want to play it for you. It would mean a lot if you stuck around and listened. A quick note, there is mention of sexual assault in this story, and if that's something that you don't want to hear right now, I would not be offended if you chose to skip this one. Okay, here it is. Funny Stories to Tell in the Dark presents Old Tapes. Now here's a quick review of the top 14 songs on WOND for the week of January 24th. Number 14 is Going to a Go-Go by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. Number 13 is this is my dad, Paul Sansulo. The year is 1966. He's 14 years old, and he's recording himself in the basement of his home in Pleasantville, New Jersey, a suburb of Atlantic City. And the jump ball! Here it is, Jim Walker. It's in. Tickles that time. My dad got his portable tape recorder when he was 11. What is the Mississippi River? And like any kid with a new toy, he was obsessed with it. Yes, the largest river in the United... No, the largest water system in the United States. He recorded everything, from basketball games to his junior high study guides. Thomas Jefferson. What about him? The third president, he was strict. What is that green stuff all over you? In this recording, for example, my dad's friend Jackie is pretending to be an alien who has just made contact with a human. Where are you from, sir? The human just so happens to be my dad. How old are you? Two million years old. I'm a Bolivian. Do you want to see my birth certificate? Yeah. My dad has always been a documentarian. Here's a recording he made of my mom and me when I was just a baby. As I got older, my dad would bring home a handheld video camera from his job at the local school and record my brother and I on weekends. What is it today, guys? Halloween! Yay, look at this. Pumpkin. Thanks to my dad, I have a well-documented childhood. I grew up in the 1990s before parents started posting their children's lives on social media. But a lot of my childhood memories are preserved in three-minute video clips that would work perfect on Facebook. They're short and cute and ready to be viewed on demand. And they are viewed often. 
My dad will usually queue up a series of videos before any family get together. No holiday is complete without at least an hour of watching home movies. All families have their traditions, I guess. In mine, we spend a lot of time reliving memories. My dad's documentary tendencies are based in the fact that he loves to tell stories. But they're often the same stories. Most of them take place long before my dad moved from New Jersey to Washington State, where he met my mom and raised my brother and me. I've heard all about his high school football games and the girls he had crushes on, all about his summer jobs working on the pier or in a toll booth or painting houses, the time he left school early to go protest the Vietnam War, the time he sat on a bus seat where Paul McCartney had allegedly sat the day before. I've heard these stories over and over, just like I've watched our home movies. Despite all of these redundancies, there's one story that my dad does not tell frequently. It's one that I suspect is central to his very existence, and yet I never hear it. It's the story about his older brother, David. I actually don't know much about David. Neither does my little brother, Alex. What I know about David as the person is, is absolutely nothing, to be honest. Why don't you think we knew that much about David? I think obviously it was a traumatic experience, so people don't like to talk about trauma. I think I tend to avoid things that are difficult to talk about, and this is a very difficult thing to talk about. It seemed like whenever it was brought up, it was sort of like, oh yeah, like David died in a car accident, and, mm-hmm. and that's that. My brother seems pretty content with that answer, but I'm not. Why have I heard the story of my dad's winning high school football game more than I've ever heard about his dead brother? A few years ago, my dad started digitizing all of the old tapes he had made as a kid. Before that, he hadn't listened to them since college. He just kept them in a box that he transferred from basements to closets to attics as he moved around throughout his adult life. When he told me he was digitizing the tapes, I was surprised he hadn't done it sooner. My dad never misses an opportunity to pull out old photos or to share a home movie. Why had these tapes sat in a box for so long? I do remember my dad telling me about the existence of the tapes once before, when I was a teenager. He'd even mentioned that they might include David's voice. So when I heard he had finally digitized them, I thought they might give us an opportunity to talk about David. I asked him if he would play the tapes for me the next time I visited him in Washington. He agreed. Masks are mandatory here for federal law. Because of the pandemic, I didn't see my dad for over a year and a half. The first time I see him again, I'm the one with the recorder. In the way we all somehow become our parents, I'm now a podcast producer. For the last seven years, I've lived in Minneapolis, Minnesota, far away from my family, far away from all the stories I've heard a thousand times. Part of me is hoping that by recording this, it will make seeing my dad a little easier. It gives me a reason to listen to him tell me the same stories over and over without me getting annoyed. Yeah, where are you? Uh, Where are you? I'm like by the baggage claim. My relationship with my dad can be strained at times. He'd probably say this is because I'm stubborn and don't listen to him. But I think it's, in part, 
because of the way he tells I stories. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know. He'll often spend our time together repeating to stories from his youth. Sure like he's more comfortable talking about the past than he is being oh, in the I present. Just, are you in the car? Sometimes he's so caught up in what he's saying that it doesn't sound like a story anymore. It just sounds like words. Okay. Maybe if I record all the words, I'll be able to understand what he's trying to say. Ooh. I have my thing recording just I know, for like B-roll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like the idea of B-roll. What do you like about B-roll? <laughs> I like about B-roll is that it sounds so professional that it's like the real thing to do stuff and you're doing really Like I said, stuff. my dad's a documentarian. We go back to his apartment. My parents got divorced a few years ago, so now my dad lives alone, one suburb over from the one where I grew up. The next day, I wake up early so I can go on a walk before it gets too hot. My trip to Washington happens to coincide with a major heat wave in the Pacific Northwest. It's already over 90 degrees by 8 a.m. My dad's apartment, like many homes in the Northwest, doesn't have air conditioning. They haven't needed it before now. When I get back from my walk, my dad has created a makeshift solution to the heat by positioning three fans around the main room of his apartment. We eat breakfast in the crosshairs of their warm breeze. But after breakfast, I have to turn the fans off. Because I'm recording, I need to reduce the background noise as much as possible. My dad also helps reduce background noise by asking Siri to turn off the soft jazz music he had playing. He shows me some of her other tricks. If she has a boyfriend? Hey Siri, are you dating? Siri demurs. She says she's married to the idea of helping people. Oh, that's a good answer. It's kind of like she sounds like a, a nun. I can't help but feel a little sad thinking about my dad over this last year and a half, by himself in this apartment, talking to Siri all day. I shouldn't judge, though. I spent the better part of the pandemic talking to my cat. At least Siri talks back. Are you okay? Do you need help? Yeah, no, okay. it's just really heavy, though. Now that the apartment's so, quiet, it's time to play the tapes. Years ago, my dad sets up a reel-to-reel machine. It's a large rectangular box, a little bigger than a record player. The idea was to digitize all these old tapes because I was afraid that the media start to decay. Plus, it would be nice to have... My dad shows me how he digitized the tapes. He places a tape reel onto one of the knobs and feeds a thin ribbon of tape into a little slit in the machine until it catches on the other reel. You can see it goes over the head there, so if I hit play... This first tape he plays for me is a recording of his father's choir. His father, my grandfather, was the choir director at Pleasantville High School in New Jersey. His school choirs were apparently quite prolific. They would often record their Christmas concerts for the local radio stations to play during the holiday season. My dad, David, and their middle sister, Margot, all sang in their father's choir. David, my dad tells me, was an exceptionally talented singer. He was in a doo-wop group called the Boardwalkers. I remember clearly my brother coming up from the basement. He had used my tape recorder to record the boardwalkers. And I remember listening to them doing three or four songs, and it was incredible. It's like, wow. And I thought that that tape existed. 
When he first started his digitization project, this was the tape my dad was most anxious to hear. Because there was never going to be a talking of David, um, but I was going to get singing of David because he was the lead singer. Standing in his office now, he pulls the Boardwalkers tape out of a plastic bin and shows it to me. The handwriting is my father's handwriting. So he wrote the Boardwalkers on there. But when my dad played the tape, he didn't hear his brother. I listened to both sides of it. And it was this horrible, horrible woman lecturing like a high school class, some history thing. You don't know who the person was? No, no idea. But it sounds like a, a Pleasantville High School teacher droning on both sides of the tape. I mean, I just wanted one little snippet. I just, and it was a very depressing moment when I went completely through the Boardwalkers tape and there was nothing but that lady. I'm sad that I won't get to hear David singing, but this does get my dad talking about him more than I've ever heard before. My dad was only 15 when David died. David was 21. The way my dad talks about David feels like the way a 15-year-old would talk about his big brother. He was like everything. Very good looking, and he was darker. He just I had blonde hair and he had dark hair. He was this incredible dancer. He was totally into clothes. He had 17 pairs of shoes and we shared a bedroom together. And it was basically his room because he was older. <laughs> and I can remember his 17 pairs of shoes. David was also rebellious, especially in the eyes of his 1960s suburban New Jersey parents. And my parents were teachers. You know, we were supposedly respectable. David's discretions mostly included drinking and going to parties. But David's worst deviance was when he failed his junior year of high school and had to repeat it. It must have been such a hard thing for my father since he was a teacher in the school. And my father tells the famous story where the principal comes to him and says, you know, David doesn't have enough credits to be passed on as a senior, but what do you think we should do? And my father said, well, do whatever you would do with anybody else. My dad was, in many ways, the opposite of David. He was studious, the class president, and excelled at sports. I always felt I was somewhat of a reaction to my brother. What was your relationship like with him? Well, we're five years apart. I didn't do a whole lot with him in my early years, or actually most of the years. I was a little bit of an afterthought to him, you know, because he was having his life. And I, I think I always wanted to do better than him in certain things like sports. He was on the football team, but he wasn't very good and he quit. According to my dad, David dated around a lot, but he had one main girlfriend. Her name was Marilyn. They met at a dance. When David was 18 and Marilyn was 16, they got pregnant. Marilyn's parents sent her away to a school for unwed mothers where she had the baby, a little girl. Marilyn put the baby up for adoption. It was a closed adoption, so we don't know anything about the child. We don't know where she ended up, or who she grew up to be, or if she's even still alive. I think about her a lot. My first cousin, who I wouldn't recognize if I ran into her on the street. After the adoption, Marilyn and David continued to date. Although, like many teenagers, it was an on-again, off-again type of relationship. Eventually, David finished high school and went to college in Missouri, 
the only college in America that would take him because he had such bad grades. It was called Tarkio College in Tarkio, Missouri, the middle of nowhere. And it was filled with East Coast bad boys. David initially struggled in college, but according to my dad, he was starting to get on track. In October of his junior year, David got a call from Marilyn. She was pregnant again. For my grandparents and for Marilyn's parents and for Marilyn too, the thought of giving up two babies was too much to bear. My grandfather demanded that David come home from college immediately and get married to Marilyn, that they have this baby and keep it and raise it together. David got the call on a Sunday and was home in New Jersey by Monday. The families had arranged for David and Marilyn to get married that Saturday. The week leading up to the wedding, David stayed in my dad's bedroom, the bedroom they used to share. When he was back living in his, your room... Uh-huh, that he, week? Yeah. Did you guys talk about what was happening? No, we didn't. Um, I hardly saw him. There is a very significant conversation that we had, the last conversation I had with him, which turned my head around and messed up for years and years and years. This conversation my dad is talking about occurred the day before the wedding. To set the scene, picture my dad, at 15 years old, back sharing a room with his older brother. My dad, who had finally felt like he was stepping out from David's shadow, suddenly found himself surrounded by all of David's things, all 17 pairs of shoes. Still, it was a reminder to my dad of how much he wanted to be like his older brother, how much he looked up to him. In an act of both imitation and admiration, my dad tried on a pair of David's pants without asking. And the button popped, the top buttons that that collapsed it together. And I didn't know how to sew or anything. And I was too scared that I was trying on his clothes. And I remember putting it back in the drawer and saying, oh, okay, whoops, make sure you don't find out about that. My dad didn't tell David about the button. And that night, the night before the wedding, David invited his friend Jimmy to go to Atlantic City to have a bachelor party of sorts. My dad wanted to go to Atlantic City, too. He wanted to do some shopping. He suggested to David that they go together. I walk in the room. I said, you want to go over to Atlantic City? He says, no, I have to fix these pants. You go ahead. And he's sewing on the button that had popped off his pants. And so we didn't leave at the same time. So my dad left and took the bus to Atlantic City. A little while later, David and his friend Jimmy also went to the bus stop. While they were waiting, a car pulled up and offered them a ride. They hadn't planned to hitchhike, but they figured it would be faster than taking the bus. They got in the car. As my dad's telling me this story, he reminds me that hitchhiking was much more common back then. They did it all the time. In fact, my dad would end up hitchhiking back from Atlantic City that very same night. Atlantic City is located on Absecan Island, a barrier island off the coast of New Jersey. The highway from Pleasantville to Atlantic City is a narrow four-lane road that connects the island to the mainland. There were two lanes going each way, with no divider. According to Jimmy, 
The driver who picked them up was racing with another car. As they raced along the narrow road towards the island, the two cars bumped into one another, which pushed the car that David and Jimmy were in into oncoming traffic. Their car crashed head-on into a car traveling the opposite direction. The woman in the other car died. So did the driver who had picked up David and Jimmy. Jimmy was the only person who survived. Um, Then we get the phone call, you know, the phone call you never want to have. So I'm down in the basement, and my mother comes down. And it's one of those moments you just, you know, takes your breath away. She just said, just got a phone call. David was killed in a car accident. And I, I remember saying this. I said, you're kidding. And she said, when I kid about something like this. I just remember as I ran upstairs and just was in despair and threw myself on the bed. And it's like, this is not true. This is not true. And then I remember, also remember a moment when my father comes home. And I remember he, because I don't remember him never doing this quite the same way. He wrapped his arms around me so tightly and said, this can't be true. This can't be true. The immediate feeling of loss is physical. It hurts. In a way, we know how to deal with this stage of grief innately. We scream, we cry, we throw ourselves to the ground. It comes naturally. It's the grief that comes later that's much harder to understand. And I think subconsciously, I somehow had this feeling of the night could have gone differently, whether or not the button piece had anything to do, or why was my car the safe one and his not, you know what I mean? There's all that, why me? How do I survive? And he doesn't. As my dad tells me the story of David's accident, He keeps referencing another part of the story, something he's not telling me. At first, I think he's just referring to the button, to the lifetime of guilt that came with it. But then... You're my daughter, and so I'm going to tell you one other piece that's also very emotional for me, and um, I hope you don't mind. (laughs) Um, um, The hitchhike ride back. Yeah. I don't know if you know this part of the story. I don't. Right, so, so I get picked up going back about the same time I thought he was coming this way. And a, I guess the best word is, a pedophile picked me up um, who offered oral sex, something that I had never even hardly heard about or anything, knew anything about. What Offered me $5. And it was exciting because it was like, I really? So this guy drives me to Pleasantville goes up in behind the Guyverson's diner and performs oral sex and gives me $5. That was something I couldn't even tell anybody. But, but that's, how old was this person? Oh, he was probably 40. So it's assault. Yeah. Well, I mean, he, he didn't, I, mean, I had to say yes. 
I, I could have said I could have said yeah but I think if you're 15 and it's a 40 year old I don't think consent well I just I remember thinking it was an exciting proposition it was like yeah. okay because I had never I hadn't had sex at that yeah. point in time and I thought okay sure <laughs> I guess I don't know so I could have said no I mean yeah. and actually it's but I, still you were a child I was still a child yes in I mean this person's car yeah in this person's car and they're paying me money of- they are paying me money they are so but uh, yeah so, I don't uh, know if I'm pressing this too hard, and I certainly don't want to reshape my dad's childhood trauma. But the way he's telling me the story still feels removed. He's laughing and brushing off the details like they're just some old thing that happened to him as a kid. Meanwhile, I've started shaking. My throat is closing up. There are birds chirping outside the window, messing up my perfect noise-free room, but I don't even notice them. The fact that my dad was assaulted by an older man on the same road at the same time that his older brother died, it's too much for me to process. I mean, you don't have to to answer it. It feels like like you don't, um, it feels like you, it's hard for you to be vulnerable about it. Is that true? Do you think that's true? I um, I, I think I think because here's the thing is I think that you think you've dealt with it, mm-hmm. and each time it seems like it's better. But you know, some of those things you never, I don't think, ever completely deal with. And so I try to be more matter of fact and flippant because I don't want to feel it again. But that was so connected. Somehow or another, I threw the universe off its tilt. There was this judgment feeling. I did something really bad, and almost like God was punishing me. I felt some responsibility for my brother's death. I really did. In the moment, I'm so focused on how my dad is telling the story, how it feels detached. Listening back now... I realize how hard it can be to tell these stories in the first place. The truth is, there's another reason why I wanted to talk to my dad about the tapes. It goes back to the first time he told me about them, 10 years ago. When I was a teenager, my best friend died of cancer. Her name was Annie. The way my dad talks about David reminds me of how I felt about Annie. She always felt like my more interesting, more complex counterpart. We both liked to write and draw, but Annie was so much more talented than me. Whenever I made something I felt proud of, Annie would show me something she'd drawn, and I'd feel like a poser, although she would never make me feel that way. Like David, she was also an incredible musician. She played the flute. But the thing that impressed me most about her was that she was so smart. Not in the way that I was smart. I got good grades. But Annie understood things about the world, about people and how they worked. She had a vulnerability about her that attracted people, made them feel seen. A few months before she died, she slept with my boyfriend. In retrospect, this is so minor, but... I got angry about it. I told her I didn't want to be friends anymore, even though I knew that her cancer had come back. 
We stopped talking. I heard through mutual friends that her cancer was getting worse, that she wasn't responding to treatment anymore, but I didn't reach out. Annie called me one more time before she died. She left a voicemail. In it, she said she was sorry, and she said she wanted to see me. I remember her voice breaking as she said she needed a friend. I never returned her call. She died a few days later. A few weeks after Annie died, I got a new cell phone. It was a smartphone, my first one, that I bought with cash from my summer waitressing job. The Verizon sales associate who sold me the phone assured me that all of the voicemails I had on my old cell phone would transfer over to the new phone. But somehow, in the process of setting up the new phone, all of my voicemails were deleted, including the last one Annie ever left me. When I lost the voicemail, I threw a fit. I remember sitting on the floor of my room, yelling about how I hated my new phone. My dad sat on my bed, confused, probably trying to reassure his screaming teenager that a smartphone with internet would come in handy when I was in college. I finally admitted to my dad that I wasn't upset about the phone. I was upset that I deleted this part of Annie. I remember he started crying. He told me about a tape of his brother's voice that he thought he might have, but that he wasn't sure still existed. It was the most vulnerable I'd ever seen him. It was the most vulnerable we had ever been together. I mean, the other part about it with the like recording of David is yeah. I feel like... Um, the only time you mentioned that you had a recording of David mm -hmm. to me, right. um, when I lost the, I had a voicemail from Annie. Oh, right. Yes. And I remember, I think it, I'm sorry. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I, I really appreciated that you told me about the recording because I feel like I, I mean, I, I needed to hear that, so I, I just want you to be able to share that with me, not in a way that feels like you're just telling, like, the, the facts of the story. Mm. Like, then it's hard for me to know how to react to it. I feel like I had a similar right, experiences yeah. as a young adult, and I guess I, I wish I would have had a place to share that. I think it would have been helpful to know that someone else oh, had sorry. a similar experience. Can I give you a hug? Yeah, I'm sorry. Are you okay? Yeah. Like my dad with David, I think of Annie's death as the defining moment of my young adult life. It's something that I still can't get over. It's influenced so many choices I made in my 20s, like moving across the country to try and escape the pain and getting obsessed with recording things so I wouldn't forget them, and also second-guessing my ability to judge people ever again. It's also something I don't like to talk about. 
And when I do, it's easier to be flippant about it rather than talk about how it makes me feel. So even though it frustrates me, I understand why my dad doesn't like to talk about David either. But I also hope that can change. After my dad tells me the story of David's death, he plays me another tape. This one is labeled the basement tape because most of it was recorded in his basement. It includes the Alien Sketch Show and the Top 10 Music Countdown and his study guides. It also contains this. This is a recording of one of my grandfather's choirs, but the recording is being made by my dad as the choir plays over the radio. Their whole family, my dad, David, their sister, is sitting in the living room, listening to the choir sing. It was pre-recorded, so my grandfather is in the living room listening with them. At the end of the song, one boy's voice gets just a little louder than the rest. David notices and says, It's a little hard to hear, but he says, that's Richard Ney. Calling out the boy whose voice is too loud. This is the only audio of David that my dad was able to find on the tapes. The only known audio of David talking that still exists. That moment of finding my brother's voice was stunning. And that was like, again, it was like, I just, you know, I just wanted a piece of him. I wanted a little piece of him. And yet now you talk about Annie's and that, that uh, voicemail. It's a sort of the same thing. The audio of David saying, it's Richard Nay, only lasts one second. But it's one second that captures who David was. A singer, a critic, a judgmental teenager, and a boy who would sit every Christmas with his family to listen to his father's choir on the radio while his little brother recorded it. I just looked up to him. I probably hated him like a sibling brother might hate somebody. But I also, you know, was such a, you know, how is that again? It was such a loss because he was, I wish he would have been around my life because it would have been nice to have some guidance because he, <clears throat> he was a, you know, he was somebody you look up to. And I often tried to imagine how he would have navigated life. Um, And, I mean, I like to think of him as just on a forefront of arts and culture like a lot of people that age. When a story is stuck inside you, it's like a cosmic congestion. It blocks everything else from coming out. Your emotions, your identity, it all gets trapped behind a story that you can't tell. And what does come out is fragmented, incomplete, a story without a purpose. I want to tell this story, the story of my dad, of David, of Annie, of the tapes, to get it all out of me. Not so that I forget them, but so that I can see them and tell them clearly without them getting stuck to everything inside me. I think this is why people like to record things too. 
To keep memories outside of ourselves. To keep them from getting tangled up inside. To keep them safe. To keep them, period. When my dad and I are done listening to the tapes, we are both dizzy from dehydration. We've been talking for almost four hours in his 90-degree apartment. We go to a bar near the apartment that has air conditioning. In the car ride over, he starts talking about David again. I think Kansas, the University of Kansas, they had a big kind of... He's telling me about the time David went to a music festival in Kansas. The story is rambling and a bit disjointed, like a lot of my dad's stories can be. But it's a story I've never heard before. Maybe there's space for new stories to come out now. I take out my phone and try to record some of what he's saying. But after a while, I put it away. We go into the bar. We each order an iced tea and split a large plate of crinkle-cut fries. As we sit there, I try to take in everything about the moment. How my throat feels scratchy. How the iced tea is so cold it makes my teeth hurt. How my dad looks, if he looks a little freer. How the energy between us is lighter, but also more raw. How my body is so exhausted from feeling so much that I could fall asleep right there in the booth. How the soft, starchy fries taste as they dissolve in my mouth. Without my recorder, I try to remember it all. Who knows? Maybe later, I'll want to tell someone about it.